Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast from Northern Seminary. This week's episode is part of a special summer series discussing the stories of women found in Scripture. For this week's conversation, we are joined by Dr. Lynn Coick, Dr. Carmen Imes, and Serene Musselman. Join us as we debunk common myths, explore important themes, and discuss the relevance of these women's stories for our faith today. Hey there, Alabaster Jar listeners. We are back with week two of our summer series where we are looking at women in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We are joined once again by Carmen Imes and also our host, Lynn Coick. I'm so excited to continue this conversation. Today, our theme is on women in leadership. We are looking at a couple of women in the Old Testament as well as in the New. So Carmen, who are the two women from the Old Testament that you are sharing with us today? Uh, we're going to look at Miriam and Hulda. And who are they for someone who <laughs> might be wondering who they yeah. are? <laughs> so Miriam is the sister of Moses, and we read her story in Exodus. Uh, we get little, a couple of little glimpses of her in Exodus and in, and in Numbers. And then Hulda is maybe one of the littlest known, least known women in the Bible. And she's a prophet uh, during the days of Josiah. So we'll we'll look at her role in the Reformation of her day. And uh, we'll piggyback uh, on those themes developed there by looking at two women mentioned in the Book of Romans, uh, Phoebe, who is a deacon in Cancray, and then um, Junia, who is well known among the apostles. So those are the women that we'll be looking at uh, along with Miriam and Hulda. Mm -hmm. We've got some great stories to learn today. And as you have already seen, if you uh, didn't hear last week's episode, go back and listen there as well. Each week, we're going to be starting off our conversation by looking at common myths. We're going to do some myth busting in this series. So Carmen, as you look at the stories of Miriam and Hulda, do you notice any common myths that seem to Mm -hmm. have come out in uh, our reading of their stories? Sure. I think Miriam gets a bad rap because in uh, Numbers chapter 12, uh, there's an incident where she and Aaron are criticizing Moses and his leadership and she's condemned. And so I think that sort of hangs over her. And so we miss what a prominent role she had, um, that we let that color everything. And then Hulda, I would say she herself is a myth buster because one of the myths that it, that kind of floats around about women in leadership is that God only uses women in leadership when there are no good men who can take the lead. And Hulda busts that myth because she's married and her husband is not the one who sought out for uh, for a word from God. She is. And she is living at the same time where there are other prominent prophets in Israel, and yet they are not being sought out, she is. And there's no condemnation from the Lord. There's no condemnation from the narrator for seeking out her wisdom or her word from God. And so I think just the fact that Hulda exists busts some of our myths. That's awesome. Well, and with um, Phoebe, I think she she helps us see, and I, I probably bust the myth that women really didn't have a lot of influence in Paul's time Mm. in the first century Mm. because she's Paul's benefactor. Mm. Um, And 
she, so she is uh, a, um, a very important part of Paul's ministry, how he is able to do his ministry. And then Junia, uh, Junia's had, I, I don't know if we want to call this myth busting or she becomes a myth. I don't know because um, somewhere along the translation, it was determined that she really couldn't possibly have been female. It's not a female name because after all, she's well known among the apostles. So instead she must be a man. And so they, the translators created this new name called Junius. And suddenly uh, Andronicus has a brother instead of being married <laughs> to Junia. So uh, yeah, she becomes a myth herself. And then eventually more recently, we've taken another look at things and realized, nope, Junia is a very common name in the ancient world for women. There is no such name as Junius. That's just kind of a made up name. And, uh, and so whatever else is going on, Junia is in fact female. <laughs> oh, well, we have some spicy myths for this week's episode. I can't wait to dig in. So as we uh, attempt to read their stories well, um, maybe there are some common themes that we should be on the lookout for um, as we read the stories, both of Mir Miriam and Hulda, as well as Phoebe and Junia in the New Testament. So Carmen, um, what are some themes that you see in these stories? Hey, Carmen, I think uh, your mic cut out. Let's try that again. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. So you can just go straight into yeah. it. Okay. Well, the word that connects the two women in my uh, context in the Old Testament is prophet. And um, that that's what unites these two women. Miriam is the first woman to be called a prophet in the Bible. Uh, that occurs in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. It says, then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a... a hand drum, I'm going to retranslate it here, took a hand drum in her hand, and all the women followed her with hand drums and dancing. And then she sings. So this is a scene in which they've just crossed the Red Sea, and Moses leads the people in a long song of celebration. And then true to form, um, in in the ancient world, when, when a battle was won, women would meet the warriors uh, with hand drums and dancing to celebrate the victory. And so Miriam then leads the women in this way, but it's interesting that she's called a prophet. And some scholars have said, oh, she can't be a prophet because look, she doesn't do any of the things that prophets do. But if we look um, in, in the near context, we see Exodus chapter 7 verse 1 refers to Aaron as a prophet. And Aaron also doesn't do the things that classical prophets do later in the Old Testament. Um, but in fact, Miriam and Aaron are are basically doing the same thing in Exodus. So Exodus 7, 1 says, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. So Aaron is a prophet in the sense that he takes what God tells Moses and he proclaims it to the people or to Pharaoh. And so I think it's significant that in Exodus 15, Miriam's referred to in the same way. Um, Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister. It doesn't say Moses' sister. It's connecting her to Aaron because they're the same kind of prophet. They take Moses' words and they proclaim them to the people. So she takes Moses' song and proclaims it. And her role in the book is so crucial. I, I find it so fascinating because here she is on the shores of the Red Sea 
bearing witness to God's work of deliverance. And where else do we know her? Uh, We know her from chapter two, where she's on the shores of the Nile River, bearing witness to God's deliverance of Moses um, into the arms of the daughter of Pharaoh. And so she she's like the bookend to the Moses deliverance saga um, and the Israel deliverance saga. In both stories, she she is there bearing witness and proclaiming God's work and leading others and praising God for that work. Uh, so, so that's, I think, significant. And in Numbers 12, she refers to herself as a prophet and God does not correct her. Um, and then later in the prophets, I think it's in Hosea, um, it refers to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam as prophets and leaders of Israel. So, um, so she, she has uh, an enduring memory in, in Israel's story that I think we shouldn't overlook. She has a key role to play in Exodus. And then Huldah, um, the, the theme with Huldah, that the scene is that Josiah has become king of Judah and he is asking, uh, the priests to repair the temple and to kind of clean it up because it's gone into disrepair. And while they're doing this spring cleaning, they come across this scroll that hasn't been read for a very long time. And the scroll apparently contains the words of the Torah and they read it and are dismayed because they can see how serious it is that they've been neglecting this covenant from the Lord. And so they're trying to figure out what to do about it. Um, when the king hears about it, he says, uh, send for Huldah. <laughs> and so they they um, they take the scroll to Huldah and ask her, you know, what, what to do about it. And she gives them a prophetic word from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book of the king, book the king of Judah has read because they've forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger. By all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I've spoken against this place and its people, they become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors. You'll be buried in peace and your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they take that answer to the king. So she's not just proclaiming the word of God. She's proclaiming the word of God to the king and it's taken seriously and it actually sparks a national revival and they go around taking down the high places of of worship to other gods. So she, she leads at a crucial time and somehow the people knew, hold us the woman to go to when you want to find out what Yahweh is thinking about something, she, we can trust her. Yeah, and, and I think that's such a crucial picture of what leadership is, mm. right? So leadership is not about personal aggrandizement, mm. about being uh, an influencer that um, has, I don't know, hundreds, thousands, whatever, mm-hmm. millions of followers on any given day, um, but is someone who is not afraid Hmm. to say here's the word of god i mean what she that that wasn't just all sweetness and nice that message that she sent to the king that that was a a big deal and same with miriam in her acts of boldness Mm -hmm. i think the the boldness is i'm going to rejoice in the lord like i 
I am testifying to mm-hmm. what, uh, what the Lord has done. And I, I find the same thing when I look at the um, 16th chapter of Romans, mm-hmm. especially when I look at uh, Junia. You know, there's a lot of conversation about, is she really an apostle or was did the apostles, the group of the apostles just happen to know Andronicus and Junia? You know, and it's, you know, it, it's a partially a grammar question, how are you going to read the Greek text? But mm-hmm. mostly I think it's... Um, it focuses so much on can can a woman lead, and you forget to read the rest of it. They're in prison. Mm. <laughs> They've been in prison with me, Paul says, and they're outstanding among the apostles, and they were mm. in Christ before I was, and they're suffering for the faith. What does it mean to be a leader? Uh, it means that you go to jail for testifying to Jesus about mm. Jesus. You know, mm. I just think when we when we see leadership in a very secular way. Like Jesus says that, you know, the Gentiles lord it over you, right? Like that's how they see leadership. Then it skews the question of, well, can women lead? Mm. You know, kind of whatever that very ambiguous question means. But when you ask, well, what's leadership look like? It looks like being in jail. It looks like having Mm. the courage of Hulda to say, wow, God is just not happy with how you are right now. You know, speaking truth to power, um, regardless of what the consequences will be. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that, and so we see that, uh, we see it in men, of course, but we see it here mm-hmm. in these women, and it reminds us what godly leadership is to be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well put. But I have a question for you before Serene moves us on here. She's very good at keeping me on track, but sometimes <laughs> I break out. Sometimes I just do run down that rabbit hole. So you mentioned a little bit about Miriam getting leprosy. Mm-hmm. And I have wondered about that, um, kind of what's going on, because both she and her brother were a little bit upset at Moses, but yes. she receives the um, the punishment in mm-hmm. in the form of leprosy. Although I have to say, when I read it, Aaron's really sad about mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. can you kind of unpack that story a little bit for us and maybe tell us why it happened the way it did? I would be happy to. I've wrestled with this for a long time too, as I and felt the tension as I read this with students, because Miriam and Aaron are both rebellious against Moses' leadership, but it feels like Miriam's the only one who bears the brunt of it. Uh, I think there's two things going on. One is that um, if Aaron were to have gotten the skin disease, and 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 we know now it wasn't leprosy, but the we the word leprosy is often used here to, to describe it. So it's a defiling skin disease of some kind. And if Aaron had gotten that, then he would be unable to represent the people before God in the tabernacle. So it would have disrupted all of Israel's access and to worship of God. So so there's, I think, a mercy there that, that Aaron didn't get it. But I think more importantly, um, the whole point of their lifting themselves up against Moses was to say, you know, They say to him, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? They're wanting to put themselves on par with Moses. And uh, you're probably aware of the the rules in Leviticus for what happens when you get a defiling skin disease. You have to show yourself to the priests and the priests say, yep, you're unclean. The priests can't actually heal your disease. They just declare you're unclean. And then if and if the disease goes away, then they can declare you clean again. But they don't actually do anything. They don't cure you. 
And so I think this incident is demonstrating Moses' superiority over Aaron, his superior authority, because Aaron has to turn to Moses and say, please don't hold this sin against us. Like, please do something about this. And Moses prays and she's healed, which is kind of, you know, Aaron's eating his own just dessert. Like he had to rely on the brother that he was trying to exalt himself against. So it it demonstrates Moses' superior authority. Um, and, and so it's shaming him in a similar way that it's shaming Miriam. It's putting both of them in their place. Uh, you think you're your big stuff, well, you can't actually solve any diseases like your brother can. So, no, that's that's really good. I I think that I, I like both of those uh, both of those thoughts, and I think you're right. We forget that Aaron entered into sacred space mm-hmm. that he would be prevented doing. Whereas in the New Testament, uh, all things have been made clean or been declared clean, and so. Yeah. In our evangelical context today, then we don't really have a we don't have separate sacred spaces. Right. Yes. This this concept of ritual purity is so foreign to us, but it was an essential part of the tabernacle uh, running smoothly. If if the presence of a holy God is going to be in the you know physically in the community, then there were certain safeguards that had to be taken, and so. Um, watching their ritual purity was once one piece of that absolutely absolutely and that's i might just add parenthetically when people say oh there was only a male priesthood in um in israel i think well yeah because a healthy woman in the prime of life would be Mm -hmm. unclean for a significant amount of that time and not be able to approach the lord and and even if you were a man, it's not like you could be a priest. You had to be of a certain family and mm-hmm. even or tribe. And even if you were from that tribe, if you did come in contact with a uh, skin disease or something mm-hmm. else, you were prevented from going in. So it's not right. a difference of male and female. There's a lot right. more going on. Uh, Well, Carmen and Lynn, thank you so much for taking us deeper into these stories. As we wrap up the conversation today, we've used a a few words here like apostle or prophet, leadership. And depending on the context of someone listening to today's episode, we might come to those terms with different perspectives. So um, just as we wrap up today, what application do these stories have to our own lives, perhaps for a woman that's listening who... um, is feeling a calling into uh, mm. using gifts of leadership, mm. perhaps even prophecy or apostleship. And so um, how can we learn from these stories that we've uh, talked about today and apply them to our own faith, our calling, our mm. giftings? Mm. Uh, yeah, anything that you want to share with our listeners as we close out? I, I think sometimes we get stuck on roles, like um, positions that have titles and we don't talk enough about calling and gifting. And I think all four of the women that we talked about um, were responding to God's call and they were gifted to do that work. And those gifts, the gifts that are described for us in the New Testament are not gender specific. None of Paul's gift lists prohibit, like they're not limited to men. Uh, they're not, women are not prohibited. So, um, you know, lots of 
people quibble over titles, what title is a woman allowed to have? But I think we've just looked at four examples of women who played significant roles in the community of faith, um, you know, with or without a title, they're exercising gifts that were given to them by the Spirit. And, and I would add with that, yeah, that like with Phoebe, um, most scholars believe that she took the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Romans. She carried that uh, to Rome and she read it. And mm -hmm. if she's reading it, then she's also interpreting it. She, like uh, a Miriam and a Hulda, are presenting uh, the word of God, um, sometimes through a Moses or a Paul, and sometimes like Hulda directly from Mm -hmm. from the Lord, but she is speaking what we now, Phoebe is, what we now call scripture. Mm -hmm. And you're right, you don't necessarily need a title for that. There is, there is just her calling and her obedience to that call. Mm -hmm. And I would say that for us, it's important, just like the Romans listened, just like Josiah listened, um, and just like the women sang with Miriam, when we hear a woman speak um, with, in, in her calling uh, about faithful living and mm. she's exegeting scripture, we are invited to hear, <laughs> to hear God in yes. that. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for sharing. I'm looking forward to next week's episode as we continue this series. And listeners, if you are following along with Lynn's course on seminary now, the stories uh, from the New Testament specifically that we've talked about today um, correlate with episode eight, where Lynn talks about Phoebe and Junia. So you can go and check that out there. Carmen, Lynn, thank you so much. And um, listeners, thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next week on the Alabaster Jar. You've been listening to another episode of The Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed this week's conversation, please subscribe, share, and plan to join us again next week as we continue this special summer series. To explore further the topics and stories discussed in this week's episode, check out Lynn's Seminary Now course on Women in the New Testament and Carmen's Seminary Now course on Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. We've included links to both of those courses in today's episode description.